Welcome to Your Next Chapter, the podcast dedicated to providing you with the game changers and experts to tackle the next chapter of your life. Whether you want to start a business, pivot in your career, or get in the best shape of your life, I provide the guests to draw tactics, insight, and inspiration from to conquer your next chapter. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. With me today, I have Marissa Kepelinski from Vancouver. I brought Marissa onto the show for a variety of reasons. The main one being is that she's a financial advisor and has been doing this for over 12 years. She's very passionate about her craft. She does a lot of public speaking. And I knew she could give you guys some value about how to improve your relationship with money, how to make sure you have more of it, how to save, and how to plan for your future, because this is something we as millennials really need to give more focus to. One thing that does not get talked nearly enough about is planning for the future. We as human beings are not naturally long-term thinking creatures. We typically tend to be more short-sighted, focus on the now. There's been lots of studies done on this about how we don't really look out 10 or 20 years. And this is a big reason why environmental issues are hard for us to tackle because there are such long-term problems that they don't immediately impact us that we don't necessarily give them the attention they deserve. So same thing with our relationship in money and planning for the future. We're not always thinking 10 or 20 years down the road. And Marissa gets into the importance of why you need to start saving now, how it's going to help you live a happier life down the road. She also shares some tactics and tricks she personally uses to save money and she uses with her clients. So I knew these things would be valuable to help you move forward with your finances. Lastly, we talk about the relationship you have with money. Marissa believes this is something that's not talked about nearly enough in our society as money is an emotional thing. We don't talk about the emotional relationship that we have with money. So without further ado, here's Marissa. I got Marissa Sipolinski on the line here with me. She's joining me over Skype. Marissa, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be a guest on your next chapter. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's get right into it. I want to start off by asking you, if your life was a book, what would be the name of your book? Great question. Uh, I actually have been thinking about this because I am in the process of of uh, starting notes down for writing a book and the title that I want to go with is one more mountain one more mountain I like one it. more mountain it uh it starts back for me mountains represent a lot in terms of um, my process and the way I approach life and the way I approach in about 2009 2008 2009 I got into I went through a little mountaineering stage we'll call it nice and uh yeah, I, I learned a lot in that process. I'm, I'm no longer climbing mountains on the same level that I was then. Uh, it was, I think, 2011. That was I had I, I stopped doing that. Uh, but I learned a lot in the process, and I learned a lot. I saw the metaphor in the way that we climb the mountain and how that relates to our life. And it feels like there's always another huge mountain. I'd like to say it's just like, I get to the top of this mountain, and I'm done, and, you know, it's rest time. But my life sort of seems to be going that there's always another big mountain ahead of me and it's just tackling one mountain at a time. And, uh, yeah, there's just so many metaphors in terms of how I approach the climbing a mountain in terms of how I approach my life. So I like what, it. Uh, one more mountain. I like it. I like it a lot. I want to, I'm excited to dig into your life and hear a little bit more about those mountains. 
<laughs> Let's start off with your current chapter. For the audience that doesn't know a lot about you, talk about what you do right now and what the current chapter of your life looks like. Sure. Uh, I am a financial advisor. I started as a financial advisor almost 13 years ago, and that was in Ontario, and then I moved up to Vancouver, fell in love with the outdoors here and the just the, the lifestyle here, and uh, decided to work a little bit harder to be able to afford to live out here and experience the Vancouver lifestyle, and built a business here. Five years ago, I partnered up with my business partner, Franco, and we started Capital Core Financial, and we came together largely on our belief and our understanding that, you know, we spent a few years getting to know each other and talking about this, but we really found in our own practices that money and financial planning was so much deeper and so much greater of a discussion than just looking at the numbers. It was, it was emotional. It was, you know, looking at people's history with money in terms of their family, what they saw as kids. And there was an emotional and subjective component to money that we both found people weren't talking about. And we, we partnered with a mission of let's work with people on a deeper level. Let's challenge people to really go there. Let's challenge people to have the conversation with their partner, with their spouse, uh, you know, with their parents, with their kids, and really get through their emotional baggage around money so that they can really start building wealth. I mean, ultimately, we're financial advisors and we help people build wealth, but we go at it from a more holistic level of looking at both sides, the subjective and the objective, opposed to just looking at it as a dollar value. So we partnered up to do that, and we've been on a mission since uh, in terms of working with people to really help them make money. And we have some big goals. Uh, we, we work very closely with uh, different charities, and we have a goal to redirect a billion dollars from taxpaying dollars to CRA to the not-for-profit. And awesome. that, yeah, it's a big goal. It's a big goal. We're over a million into it in terms of helping redistribute uh, money to not-for-profit and a big part of our business is, is talking to people and helping educate them on on how they can get involved in charitable endeavors. That sounds so, really rad. Yeah, that's, that keeps me busy. <laughs> and in all of that, trying to climb some mountains on the side. <laughs> Keeping yourself active in between. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And let's start off with some of your first chapters and originally what made you get into being a financial planner and advisor? What was it about that industry early on in your life that really sparked a motivation to get into that? Yeah, um, well in university actually I took psychology as a minor with my degree and I was focusing on business and a lot on numbers and I loved that, I loved that side of things but I found psychology and human behavior to be the fascinating part. Uh, I found understanding people and what makes people tick and what makes people do things and choose to buy a product and and that was the part that I was fascinated by. And so when I graduated university, I thought, how could I combine? I was the kid who loved, like I loved numbers. I loved when everyone was playing with different toys. I was counting Monopoly dollars and putting them in different stacks and I would make my sister come into my bedroom and at like probably five or six years old and I would set my bed up like I was a teller and we'd play bank and that for Did me you have a piggy bank? Like were you one of those kids that like saved a lot of money early on? Was money something always as a fascination for you? Yeah, I didn't have a piggy bank though. I had a Hillroy notebook, funny enough, that my dad gave me. I think I was probably six or seven. And I still remember it was a blue Hillroy notebook. And there was a column that was a, a credit side and a debit side. 
And every time that I had a dollar or what have you, I would give it to him. I don't actually know where that money went. And I, then I would put it in my notebook and my notebook was my bank account. And that was one of the best experiences that I probably could have had with starting a bank account, essentially. I mean, a virtual bank account at such a young age and creating that connection with the with the dollars. And I loved it. I loved it. And I loved uh, the experience of doing what I could to collect money, whether it was, you know, your lemonade stand or uh, trading things or, you know, babysitting. I started babysitting at 11. Whatever it was, all my money would get collected and then it would go into my virtual bank account and I would give my dad the money and he would save it for me. But that that kept me, you know, and my, my dad spent a lot of time with me helping me understand the numbers at a very young age. He would sit there and he would explain to me numbers and how they worked and the different formulas and multiplications and ways of using numbers. And math was always my top. Some people couldn't stand math. That was always my top subject. I was always acing it and I was always very high and all of the even in high school, I remember just calculus and algebra and all of them. I loved it because I was good at it. So, and it was largely because my dad spent so much time with me on that and, and from such a young age. So I loved numbers, but I also, when I was doing finance um, and university and I was looking at the number side, I was more fascinated by the human behavior side of things. So when I left university, I graduated. It was actually during graduation, there was a job fair and there was somebody there from a uh, financial advisory board or team uh, with another company, which uh, actually is what got me into this. I didn't end up you going with them. I went with another company, but they were talking about how you could mix, you know, your love for people and human behavior and numbers and and do this role of being a financial advisor and really be working with people. And and I was sold. I mean, I was in because it wasn't a a digital account. Like I knew I wasn't going to be on the digital, more accounting spreadsheet side of things. I wanted to be more working with people. I like to talk. I like being around people and I needed that human connection. And this seemed like the perfect avenue. So that was the route. That was the route I went. And over the course, I found myself here and, and now partnered up with my partner who, uh, who funny enough, he was telling me recently he got, and, and he didn't know about my dad having done that for me, but he, he opened a bank account for his kids, I, I think at the age of maybe four or five, and he had them doing similar exercises. And I was, I remember having a moment of thinking, we are definitely meant to be business partners. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a connection there. And we both, we have similar philosophies and beliefs around uh, the importance of understanding money from a very young age. Let's get into, I know you do a lot of public speaking. And one thing I really want to get into, and I think it's going to have a lot of value for the audience here, is why people are in debt. And so I really want to tackle that because I feel like definitely the younger demographic and people of all ages we were talking even before this, how they're really poor at saving money. Mm-hmm. Why do people, you know, and we can talk about Canada specifically, that's where we're located, but we can also kind of talk generically, uh, North America, the world. Why is debt such a problem at this point in time in history? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. I mean, I talk about it all the time in my presentations. 78% statistics say of, of Canadians are in debt. And that's excluding mortgage debt. So it's, I, something's obviously, you know, and, and the trend is getting worse. And I think that there's, I think there's a lot of problems going on. I think for one, a lot of us aren't connected to our money. A lot of us are walking around and there's a lot available to us. There's a lot of of toys, of I call it my shiny thing. Like there's always a shiny thing that you know that pulls us in. We we're on track, we're saving, and then there's like a shiny object that for some people it's the shiny watch, for some people it's a car, for some people it's you know the Starbucks coffee every day, whatever that might be that gets us off track. 
we want these things and we have access to it because we have so much, you know, access to credit and, you know, you can walk into a bank now and you can get a mortgage for a million dollars. Does that mean that you should take the mortgage for a million dollars? Probably not because you ha have you calculated what that monthly amount is and if you can actually afford it and, and then what percentage of your income will be going towards your mortgage. That, that's a process that a lot of people aren't doing. So because we have such accessible, like such, um, it's so easy for us to get stuff on credit. We're just walking around doing that without actually sitting down and looking at the numbers. And I think the, the part that's missing for a lot of people is the connection to the numbers and really understanding what's going in every month, like what's coming in, what's the income we're making every month and what's going out. What are my expenses every single month? What am I spending every single month? I've, I've sat down with people who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, for all intents and purposes should not be in debt uh, or, or are just not saving. They just, they make more money, they spend more money, they make more money, they spend more money, and they don't understand where their money's going. And I'll ask them to track their spending for 30 days. And it usually takes, it'll take anywhere from 60 days to 90 days usually. Sometimes, you know, I've seen people take over a year to get them to actually complete 30 days of tracking. But just, it's not penny pinching, it's not not spending what you would normally spend, it's just writing down every time you spend any money. It could be 30 cents on parking, it could be $4 on coffee, it could be $100 on groceries, but just writing it down. And I built a very simple spreadsheet that's just like you input the number and you input the type of expense and you could do it at point of purchase. I'll be at the grocery store and I'll punch it in, in my spreadsheet. I do it every single day, I've been doing it for a while and and is this spreadsheet in your phone? Like, is it something that yes. you... Yes, okay. yes. I, I made it on Google Sheets so that I just have it on my phone at all times, wherever I go. I'll be traveling and I'll still track everything every single day. Now it's to some degree, not an obsession, but kind of, because I've been doing it for so long. I started doing it because I was originally telling everybody to do it because I was reading and listening to all these things on the importance of tracking and the importance of knowing your numbers and knowing where your money is going so that you could, you know, be in reality with your money. And, and be objective about your money and build a plan, like a real plan, not like a plan that we fall off of, but a real plan. And in order to do that, you need to do that exercise. And so I started doing it and I learned so much about my own personal, you know, beliefs around money and my own struggles with money and my own, even my own entitlement that I felt like, you know, there's something I want. Well, I want it and I, I can get it because I have cards that I can swipe that will let me get it. So and would I you say this is something that's really allowed you to succeed at like making sure that you're not spending too much and getting in debt? Is this like one of the key habits that you've developed for yourself that's really allowed you to manage your 100%, money? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think this is the habit that you have to do. Even if you only choose to do it for, you know, three months, I think at some point everybody needs to do this habit needs to build the muscle of tracking and knowing the numbers to build that awareness to get their feet in the ground that to allow them to build true wealth. Otherwise, what, is, sorry. what does your spreadsheet look like? Like what do you just track everything that you, is there categories on it? Is there like, I'd love for you to send me even maybe I yeah. can include it in the notes afterwards so people can see what you're 100%. doing. 100%. Like how does it look like? Like visually just kind of go over really quickly. Is it just a simple spreadsheet where you track what you've already categorized in some shape or form? You know what? I have, um, Franco, my business partner and myself had made a really complicated one. And when I say complicated, it's not actually complicated, a more complex one, I'll call it in terms of 
the details and it had categories for fun and, and, and eating out and, and groceries. It had, you know, all of the categories for every type of spending. And then it went in and then it showed you your percentages of income that go to each one. And we found that people weren't doing it. It was almost so detailed and so much that it was, people would be enrolled into the idea of doing it. They would see the value and then they'd leave the office and then they wouldn't do it. And after following up and trying to get people on it, I was like, we need to either change this, like we need to, we need to reroute because nobody's doing it. And so the one I built is just a very basic one on Excel, which you pull up on sheets on your phone. On the left-hand side, it's got the date. And for each day, I have three or four bars. And then it's just basically got business and personal and type of expense, three, uh, three columns there. And it, I, I just put the number in, if it's a business expense or if it's a personal expense. And if it's a personal expense, I'll put in, $18 and then under type of expense, I'll put Whole Foods dash groceries. And at the end of the week, it's got a total for business and personal. And at the end of the month, it has a month total, which just totals all the weeks. And at the very bottom, there's a tab for every month. So what's cool too, is when I'm doing my taxes, I can pull up, you know, when I did my taxes for last year for 2015, I could pull up every single month of 2015 and see, this is the exact amount I spent on gas. This is the exact amount I spent on eating out. This is, you know, and then you have everything else to back that up. But it's just, it's a nice bookkeeping tool, which is just sort of a bonus. But the process of doing it, I found making it more simple. Now I have probably close to 50 people using this tracking sheet. And I don't, I don't give it to everybody, but I give it to people who are committed to getting onto a plan and who want to set themselves clear in terms of understanding their financial patterns, in understanding their relationship with money, in understanding where their spending is going, and who want to evolve that whole, like, I don't know where my money's going, or, or I, I'm just spending everything I'm making. I don't know where my money's, you know, I don't understand why at the end of the month I don't have anything. I was tired of hearing, and a lot of people are tired of saying that and feeling that. So this is one I use for people who are committed. And, and, and it's awesome because it's on Google Sheets, so I can see when people take it and they don't end up using it. Um, I'll always offer to help sort of coach them along in the process, but if I can see that they're not using it, I, I, uh, I don't, I, I, you know, I can only provide my services. Something like that for me is free, um, and, and I don't make any money off of it, so it's an investment of my time. The intention is to help set people on the right track and to see who's really enrolled into the idea of becoming getting onto a financial plan and, and becoming financially responsible. You know, not to say you're not financially responsible if you don't track, but if it's the next step in what's needed to, to start building a plan. Um, it I helps think, you to visualize where your money's going. You have a concrete path or vision of where all your money's being spent. Totally. And it creates an awareness. It creates a connection with each dollar. You know, I think it's 70% of lottery winners lose, 70 or 77% of lottery winners lose the funds within three years, okay? And, and if you think about why that is, you know, in my, the best guess I would say is there's no connection to how, to the dollar value because they don't understand how it's earned. It's just one. So you don't have those hardworking hours that, that you had to put in to generate the money. So let's just say you make a million dollars via lottery win, then all of a sudden your spending goes up and you think you have unlimited resources, but you don't, there's no tracking, there's no, uh, you haven't built the expertise and the skills that you need to manage the money and to be in reality about what the actual amount is. So all of a sudden it's like, poof, three years later, the money's gone. And I mean, if 70% of the people that are, are winning the lottery are losing it, that says something. So, you know, how can we avoid being one of those people? 
you know, become more connected with every dollar you have. You know, don't don't just drop money. And, and I see it all the time. We spend money very mindlessly and unconsciously. So the process of tracking is to become conscious about our money again, to become aware and to become in reality with this is where I'm spending my money. And, and so you have that connection and you and you build that awareness around where every single dollar you work so hard to get is going. Two questions on a tracking sheet going back to it. One, is it a nuisance? I feel like, you know, getting on your phone every time you do a purchase like that, to me, like I would feel like, oh, that's such a chore. Like I can't believe I have to like log every single transaction. And then two, like you obviously have done it for a long period of time, but can people just do it for 30 days, 90 days, and that's going to help them to like, how long would somebody have to do that for just to gain an awareness? Or is it something you recommend you should be doing like for the rest of time? Forever and ever. No, ever and ever. You don't have to do it. I'll be like every my, minute, every day. On my deathbed, when I'm like 86 years old, inputting my, inputting my tracking. No, they'll print off a, all the spreadsheets for totally. you in your coffin. <laughs> they'll be buried with you. Oldest lady ever to track. No, I'm kidding. Uh, in terms of, okay, I'll go to question one for starters. Nuisance? No, it becomes part of your lifestyle. It's kind of like if you were to, I mean, anytime you measure something. I think once you start to see the fun in measuring and you see the benefits in measuring, it's like if you're, if you're on a diet and you weigh yourself because you want the data, you want to know where you're at and where you want to go. You can't just be like, I want to lose weight and never weigh yourself. So if you want to save or get out of debt, you're not going to make it very far if you don't know your numbers and, you, and this is part of that process. This is the scale. This is the measurement tool that you can use to excel that process. So if you connect with that and you see the value, but it is important to connect with that because if you're not connected to that and, and you start falling back three, four days, then all of a sudden you're like, ah, screw it. I'm not just not going to do it. So you need to really connect with why you would choose to do this before you commit to doing it. Um, I've done it before where I'm out and it's not appropriate for me to bring out my phone. You know, then I just all my I'll keep my receipts and I'll input it. I've had people where at the end of the night they input all their receipts. And they set five minutes aside every day. Uh, I know people that set aside time on the weekend. They set aside an hour and they have all their receipts collected and they input everything at once, once a week. So you can choose to do it whenever you want. I like doing it on the spot because I could literally do it while I'm swiping my credit card and it's done and it's not, you know, I don't find it to be a nuisance, but it's just building a muscle. It's the same as you would build any muscle. It's just building, I call it the tracking muscle. Um, right. in, in terms of the timeline, no, it doesn't have to be done forever, but I also would, you know, 30 days is generally what they say that the days of consistent behavior to build a muscle. So I do think doing it 30 days consecutively does build something and it does create, it gives you one month, uh, one month of data. So then you can say when, you know, generally when I'll first meet with people and we're trying to build a plan, I can only get so far when I say to somebody, how much do you need? You know, they say, oh, I've got X amount of dollars or I'm in debt by X amount and we're looking at like how do we either get you into a better situation or how do we build start saving for retirement or whatever that goal for them might be and I'll say one of the questions I need to know is how much are you making every month and how much are you spending every month because there's either a surplus or a deficit and without that number we can only go we, we can't move forward and unfortunately a lot of the time people will say I don't know and people don't know and people are usually embarrassed there's usually a lot of shame around it because I I think people know they should, you know, to some degree we should know because it's like it's our money and, and we don't know. Um, and so we, we carry around a lot of shame around that, which is also an awesome opportunity in so many ways because when you track for 30 days, you get to get rid of that shame that you carry around. 
Mm-hmm. And it's so empowering. It is so empowering. It's so self-esteem boosting when you're able to be like, I know to the dollar exactly what I make every month, and I know to the dollar exactly what I need to what I need to survive every month. There's usually after what the, the bonus of doing it for 90 days is you see, I know that I consistently need, let's just say, two thousand dollars to survive a month. But in my amazing world, I'm really comfortable at 3000 and I've got some bonus stuff. You know, I get to go shopping if I leave myself 3500 I'm making those numbers up right now. But let's just say, so you, you start to see where your comfort zone is and what you could challenge yourself to. So if you're like, I'm determined to get myself out of debt and I've got a debt of $20,000 and I'm making $4,000 a month and I need 2000 to survive, then you know if you challenge yourself to be a bit uncomfortable for, you know, 10 months, you've got 2000 for 10 months, that's your 20000 and you're in the clear. And after 10 months of being a little uncomfortable, then you've got 2000 surplus every month, which means even if you, you bump up your, your financial needs to 2500 and you give yourself a 500 buffer, you could save 1500 a month and you can build an emergency account so that you don't go into that debt again. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it depends. I always say I love it when people say I'll commit to 90 days, but let's start with 30 Usually once people get to 30, they'll keep going with it, but it just depends on how far you want to take it. The more, the longer you do it, the more data you have. The more data you have, the more accurate of a, of a financial plan you could build for yourself. There are some apps that are very similar that would track, there's Mint that you're probably familiar with. Mm-hmm. Can people use apps like that, or what's your viewpoint on using an app as opposed to a spreadsheet? hundred percent. You can totally, you know what, an app is better than nothing. Um, anything, you know, I, mine, I just was simple. I like it because it was just a simple, um, yeah, like it seemed to work. And some of the apps I found people were falling off of for some reason, there wasn't a connection to it. Uh, but the apps that I would say stay away from, there's apps now that you could literally scan your receipt and it goes in for you and you don't actually punch in. So let's go back to that hypothetical $18 uh, purchase at Whole Foods, I would just scan the receipt and it would input the $18 Whole Foods for me. You don't want to do that. The whole intention is for me to actually write down 1-8 Whole Foods and, and for me to see the number and for me to connect with the number and know, okay, this is where my money's going. And, and you know, it's funny, I use Whole Foods as the example, but I definitely, when I first started tracking, I remember being like, oh, wow, I spend a lot of money at Whole Foods. And it was a really good opportunity for me to really realize, like, okay, so this is, you know, and, and if I were to ever sit down and be in a situation where I could say I want to save money, I just have to be maybe a bit more willing to go check other places. And, and now I do. Now I look at prices. I look at the prices of – I used to, if I wanted grapes, I would I would buy grapes and I wouldn't even look at the cost per pound. Now sometimes I'm in Whole Foods. I'm like, that's crazy. How am I? That's insane. That's like, I'm not paying that for grapes. Those grapes 15, are way. Yeah, totally. It's like a dollar a grape. Like, I, how much do I really want these grapes? You know, and yeah. but I didn't look at those numbers before. Um, so for me, yeah, you know, like there's a lot of learning to be had by the more you can connect with that number, the more you actually are writing down that number. In my opinion, the better. Makes sense. I think the more you write it down, then people are recognizing how much they're spending, and like yourself. You saw how much you're spending at Whole Foods and make you more aware <laughs> of how much is being spent there. Totally. This is the worst Whole Foods I'd like pitch for myself. But you know what? And it's not – it's also figuring out like what your value is. Like you can see I, I have a family or, you know, like 
that I've worked with that are spending a ton on education. You know, some people might be spending a ton on education. Some people might be spending a ton on their green juice. Some people might be spending a ton on, on coffees out. For me, I might be doing Whole Foods, but you know what their values are. So, like, it might be, okay, you're saying that education is one of your highest values. For me, health and food and healthy eating is a very high value. And I won't do the coffees out, but I'll buy myself a green juice. And I, for me, that's worth it. And I know that's my, that's my piece. And I can just be in reality about it and say, okay, then I'll leave myself, you know, the, the getting it two, three times a week or what have you. But at least I know organic and certain, certain values are higher, are higher on the, on the pole for me than just, um, you know, some people, they spend a lot on going out. I, I'm lucky in that I don't drink and I don't enjoy drinking. So, you know, if somebody says, I don't know where money's going and then they see alcohol, 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 bar, 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 and they're in debt, you know, I can't help but but want people to do this exercise and look at it and say, okay, if you really want to get out of debt, you just need to stop certain behaviors. hundred <laughs> percent. Going back a little bit earlier in the podcast, you said when you met your partner from Capital Core that you guys, you know, connect on an emotional level and you wanted to talk about money in a deeper level. You said that there are certain things that people aren't talking about when it comes to money. Can you give me some examples of what people are not talking about when it comes in regards to their money? Yeah, um, we we connected on, you know, it was funny. There were so many areas that we connected on on a personal level. We both uh, we were both into naturopathic and homeopathic, and we we more outside of the box than a lot of people um, in our industry had been talking about. It. And I remember us actually bonding over that, but also bonding on talking about. You're from Vancouver. You, you yeah. Hip- hippie fast right you... <laughs> totally i know but for so long i was like people referred to me yeah it, it was just like it was cool to connect about that stuff and to realize we were on the same page and and we could have those conversations but to also be able to talk about we had both done a fair amount of, of personal development and we had done some courses at, at right before we partnered up and so we had t- kind of came together talking about our experience and our recognitions around um, how deep and emotional money was for people and how much money was something greater than just a dollar value for a lot of people you know they heard something at three years old four years old their mom and dad were fighting about money or the, the mom was saying there's not enough money or we're never you know there was some sort of thing that they heard as a kid that they've been walking around with for 30 40 50 years and and subconsciously you know, driving all of their patterns in their relationship with money to date. And so it's something that we both were realizing that nobody was talking about. And so we came together thinking, let's have this conversation. Like, let's, let's bring that up. Let's ask people, what's your first memory of money? And let's so basically, you're, the way you're brought up, you're nurturing what your parents taught you or the parent that raised you has an impact on how you view money today. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I'll ask people oftentimes because you see people's behaviors. No two people are the same, but you know, I went around once asking people, what does money mean to you? I was doing a presentation on the emotional meaning of money and I asked people, what does money mean to you? And I would video them and I'd say, I'm going to give you like, I'm going to video you. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to hit record, say the first word that comes to mind. Don't think about it. And I would say, what does money mean to you? And I heard, uh, you know, security, freedom, which, which were very common love, sex, greed, evil, you know, people, there are some people that still believe that money is the root of all evil. 
And of course, believe it or not, they're all still, you know, those are the people that are in debt. Those are the people that are struggling the most because they have this, this hate relationship with money. And although they want it and they don't want to be in debt, they have this core belief that money is bad. And it's always, always something, you know, so deeply rooted that they heard at either a young age or they saw something and they're either trying to correct something they saw or they're mirroring something they saw. So, you know, when I've met with people that have a ton, that have a lot of money under their mattress or in the bank, or they, they're super frivolous and they don't spend, but they're also just like the money sitting in something super secure and they're also not making money on their money. And oftentimes it'll be because they saw something, you know, their parents didn't have enough money and, or, or they learned something as a kid and they just don't want to repeat history or they just learned to just be super conservative. But all of our behaviors so far that I've seen, almost all, I, I've never had a case where it doesn't root back to something that we saw or learned at a very young age. I mean, we're you know we're just we're just mirroring to some degree or like working against, but it's so deeply rooted and unconscious, and we don't know it. So and so, if you saw growing up like scarcity in your family, it sounds like from what you're talking about, some people are like almost afraid of money, where they have a fear of it. So if they grew up in a household where money was scarce, that that, even though they might have money later on in life and they've succeeded or have made a lot of money, quote unquote, they still portray it as something that they don't have a lot of impact in the way they live. Yeah, they, they, they might. I've been able to like give people freedom of saying like, you're good, you're okay, like you can breathe. You know, people who are in, a, in the feeling of scarcity, but they're not. You know, they could have hundreds of thousands sitting in a checking account because they're just always scared of experiencing that. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very freeing for a lot of people when they realize that, you know, they're okay, but it's often, yes, it is something that, and it could go a different way. They might've seen scarcity as a child and then grew up and then wanted to, you know, not experience it, or they could recreate history and actually just recreate the reality that they knew to be reality and keep themselves in a scarcity position. But it's, you know, there's many different ways that they could react to a situation like that, but it is almost always related. And, and I've seen it too much where it's related. And, and when Frank and I partnered, I had been working in a, in a realm where it wasn't being discussed. And so we thought, you know, if we really want to do this well, instead of, you know, letting people be their head up, like hit their head against the wall over and over and over, let's go deeper. Let's have the uncomfortable conversation mm -hmm. and build a plan from there and build a more effective plan that's actually sustainable because you're getting basically the crap out of the way first, you know, expose the subjective stuff, expose the stuff, all of the, you know, the, like their viewpoints on money, like how they feel about it. Yeah. Get, you know, and have an emotional conversation. I, you know, I've had a lot of tears in our boardroom where, and it doesn't sound like a fun talk, but it actually is so freeing. Cause when you start to really like connect with what does money mean to me? Like, what did I see as a kid? Like, what did I, you know, what are, what's my, emo my first memory of money? What did my parents say? When you start to, to have those conversations, and I always tell people to have those conversations with their partner and, you know, and to really like free up that space, you'll, you'll learn so much more about each other and you'll learn so much more about yourself. And then you can connect with why you do what you do and not feel so robotic. You know, I think a lot of us do things and we just wake up and we, we move along like robots without actually questioning, like, why am I doing this right now? Do I really need this? Do I, is this, is this just an instinct? Is this an impulse or is this a need? Like, do I actually need to buy this right now? And I think once you start looking at 
your 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 deeper meaning on money you can strip that away and then you can start spending in reality and you can get in reality about money and then it's unbelievable how much more successful i've seen people building wealth once they strip that away first it's so much more successful at building wealth for getting pe- themselves out of debt and building wealth for, pe- me. for people listening to this podcast like do you recommend them just journaling on it? Like having like what kind of exercise can they do to really understand what kind of emotional relationship they have with money? Yeah, um, I think I think for sure th- those are all questions that you could journal on. I would and if, if you're in a relationship, I would I would definitely I wrote a blog piece recently where I was talking about have the conversation with your partner and make it fun, you know, whether it's over a glass of wine or a coffee, sit down and actually like share with each other. You know, what did you see as a kid? And if not, journal on this on your own if, if, if you want to. What, go back. What is your first memory of money? You know, what does money mean to you? Like what images, what words, what pictures come up when you think of the word money? Like what are your first initial thoughts? And you'll feel, you'll feel drawn to either good or bad or like freedom. And, you know, some people are, some people are objective. I asked that to somebody and they're like, it's a tool. It's a tool that allows me to get the things I want. And, you know, by definition, it's a currency of exchange. Did anybody define it as a currency of exchange? No. But, you know, I think if, I think if we can look at it as, as close as possible to a tool and, and simply a currency of exchange and less about something that makes us something different than what we are, you know, and that we, we, we strip away that attachment and that connection, that's when we can start, we can start planning. So I think if you can sit down and really write that out for yourself, spend some time, make it like your money journaling time and, and start writing about those things, write about all of the emotional stuff. And like, if you have memories from, from as a child with your parents, write it down. Uh, but I think that those are the important conversations to have with yourself. And, and for sure, if you're in a relationship and you're open to that dialogue, it is so freeing. 70% of arguments in relationships are said to be about 70% seems to be the statistic of the day. 70% of arguments in relationships are said to be about money problems. And they say over 50% of divorces are caused by money issues. So I speak a fair amount to couples and do a lot of presentations specifically on that and how not to be a statistic. And this exercise that I'm talking about is, is one of the core exercises. You know, really having that uncomfortable conversation with each other and, and listening. You know, let's say we're in a relationship listening to each other and I ask you the question and you share with me what it was like for you and me giving you 100% of my attention to hear what your experience was like. And then I can't, and then I won't judge you when, you know, I might still, but I'll try not to. I might, I'll have a greater level of compassion for you when you do your thing with money, you know? Because it's inevitable that we're all still going to play out our patterns. But the trick is we become more aware and then we can at least call ourselves out on them. Or if you're in a relationship and you're open to that communication, you know, you say, okay, we're both open to it. Let's help each other. You can call each other out on it in a compassionate way and say, like, hey, sweetie, like, I know this is what's going on. This might be going on for you. I wanted to check in. Like, you know, is this something we really need right now? Or is this have something to do with dot, 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 you know? And it's such a good exercise. It's such a good exercise. But yeah, sitting down and, and having that journaling time with yourself or with your partner is probably is what I would say the first step is and, and looking at those, you know, the emotional meaning of money, what it means to you and, and your your uh, memories as a child. Well, it's funny you uh, talk about that because I was at my neighbors the other day and 
they have three kids, lovely couple, and they were talking what stresses them out, and it's like the only thing is really money, right? And it's just like, and I think they're in their 50s, and it's like, you know, they have three kids that are going to go off to university soon, and they say they don't get stressed out about a lot of things, but money's the one thing again and again that kind of keeps coming back, and one of my neighbors was on strike, their company was on strike uh, last year, and so he found ways to make money when he was not working, but he said it was a really like stressful time for them, and so I can totally see that with couples, how when they don't have enough money, that's always going to create a lot of tension in their relationship and their families. Oh, totally, and I think, I mean, especially, you know, it's, it's different for men and women, too, because I think uh, on a very primitive level, we women look to men as, as you know, even though there is more equality now and women are working and all that, it's still men have this, you know, innate desire to be able to take care of. And there's like a fear there if they feel like they can't. And so if they don't have their stuff together, you know, then there's a whole thing there in terms of like, can I take care of my family? And if I can't, then it's like, I'm not a whole, I'm not, I'm not a complete man or I'm not and then there's this fear and then there's this like guilt and then the female wants the guy to be able to take care and like needs to have their stuff you know their their stuff together and so all of a sudden I can't tell you how many situations I've seen where it's like the guy's hiding that he's really in debt or the girl's hiding that she's in debt and it's we're not talking about it you know and it's it's not that the views are like right or wrong or good or bad in terms of you know me wanting my partner to have their financial situation put together, like figured out or mature in that way and that they know their numbers and they're not in debt. But it's, I need to, I need to at least connect with the fact that I feel that way and be honest with my partner about that and then share, Hey, this is what I'm feeling right now. Um, I'm struggling a bit because I feel like, you know, we're not working together on this or what have you. And I need you to have your, you know, I need to have you, you have your stuff figured out so that I can feel whatever. It's not, it's not, that makes it okay because in reality, like I need to just take care of my own situation. My partner takes care of his situation and ideally we come together, but we need to have a dialogue. It's, it's not about the money. It's a communication breakdown. You know what I mean? It's not oh, like a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. To me, like, I've been preaching dialogue to my audience and community lately. I came forward about being bisexual a few weeks ago, and so that was a huge thing for me, and that required having conversations with my mom, my dad, my sister, friends, and so, like, it was not an easy conversation. It's something I held secret in my life for, like, over 10 years, and so I had a lot of shame around that in my life about, you know, how that affected me as a man, and so, but it goes back to conversation. I was avoiding conversations, and I was, like, worried how people were going to view it, but once you have those difficult conversations, like it's allowed me to lift like so much weight off my soldiers and shoulders and move forward. And so it's really important to have those conversations because if you don't, then they're just like, it's they're under the surface and it's like people can almost sense it energetically, but no one's willing to talk about it. And so it's impacting your relationship, even though you're not talking about it. Oh my God. A hundred percent. I, I can't agree more. And it's, you make space when you get that off your chest and you take it off your shoulders, you make space for the things that matter, you know? And, and like, sometimes I, I do it too, where I fight, like I'll, you know, whether it's, it's just getting something off your chest or making space and communicating, but it gives you space to do the things that matter to you and to not, you know, otherwise that you let that control you. And then you only have so much room in your life and you only have so much room in your, in your head to hold things. And I find like the more those things hold space and you don't communicate it's like you're hiding a secret and and then it's just it's this weird thing around whatever it might be for each person you know in this context of money 
you're not communicating and it's keeping it's keeping that there and then you're not it's just like slowly and slowly it just occupies your headspace and it doesn't leave you in a good space which is definitely not the kind of place that you're going to be productive making money and getting yourself into a better financial position so i'm a hundred percent i think the core problem in all of this is communication especially so well that's one of the secrets too is they consume like you might not tell them anybody, but they eat up a bandwidth inside your head. Like they're eating up your mind and your thought process. And so even though the rest of the world doesn't know it, it's like it's still impacting your life. And you feel like, oh, it's not impacting my life because it's a secret. But no, it is impacting it because it's taking you away from situations, from people, from things you could be doing. And so like when you conceal those secrets, like you're just not present in relationships or interactions with people the way that you could be in there. So like having dialogue around anything, whether that be money or whatever it is, is so critical to having healthy relationships. A hundred percent agree. Yeah, I totally agree. It's um, the way we do anything is the way we do everything. And it's so funny. It's like, and that's, you know, going back to um, my mountain, my mountain <laughs> metaphor. It's like the metaphor I remember when I was climbing mountains and I still like I'll hike mountains and stuff like that. Not on the same level of what I was doing in 2010 when it was the higher peaks. But, you know, it's still it's still so obvious to me in that way, the way we do that and our determination. And I, I use it with physical activity a lot. It's, it's the way we do everything. And it's like for me, there's always, you know, a big mountain that I'm climbing. And every peak and every time I hit the top, I'm just, you know, I've learned a lot. I've taken it out. Sometimes I'll fail. Sometimes I, I won't make the summit. But it's there's always learning. There's always a solid effort. And, you know, the thing that I take around with me everywhere is I've got a bit of a crazy, determined, persistent <laughs> character. And so, you know, I take that with me to every mountain. But I did have a mountain guide once that said to me, this is in on Aconcagua in Argentina, I was at... Uh, he said to me, I remember on day one, and it was a, a two-week expedition, and he said to me on day one, he goes, Marissa, you're, you're stepping really, I was stepping really rough, heavy. I had this big bag on my back with 40 pounds on it, and I, was, I had these heavy steps into the mountain, and every heavy step, it was a really sandy mountain, uh, would sort of rocks would fall, and I would almost slide back a tiny bit. And he was like, watch your feet. And he's like, watch your feet, how you're stepping. And I was watching, and then he said to me, and he, then I looked at his steps, and he he stepped really lightly and, and didn't fall back. He didn't glide back. And he's like, he said to me, he goes, Marissa, be gentle with the mountain and the mountain will be gentle with you. And I remember thinking that was the most brilliant thing. It took me a minute. He said it. And then I thought, huh? And then he, I said it again in my head and I said, oh, wow, that's totally how I do life. And, and then I watched my feet in terms of when I went softer and I, I like just flowed with the mountain. I just went with it how I was actually being more effective in the sense that I wasn't falling back a tiny bit. So it was less effort expended and forward moving. And, and I thought to myself, how funny how this metaphor is so obvious for life in terms of, you know, just be gentle with yourself and be gentle with life and go with it and ride the wave instead of go against the wave. And, and I, I will say I've had many times in my life, even just recently, I'm in the middle of a gazillion different projects and planning a wedding. I'm getting married in three weeks and I have so much going on. And I found myself even having days where I was like struggling and, and, and going up against things instead of just riding it. And nothing works when you're in that state, you know, when you're not just in the flow and you're not riding it and you're not being gentle with yourself and being compassionate with yourself. And 
I know I just went on a long tangent about my metaphor of the mountains, but I will say when you're going through this process on the money thing, to loop it back to money, and you're going through the process of even exposing your own money issues to your partner or to yourself in a journal, whatever it might be, or working through getting out of debt, be gentle with yourself, be compassionate with yourself, understand that like, you know, it didn't just happen overnight. These are, this is years and years of rooted, deep rooted behavior. And I think one of the most important parts about this is just like, really finding a place of, of just gentle, awesome love for yourself in, in the learning process. And when you're learning to communicate and you're building the muscle, it's, it's a new muscle, you know? And if it was, if we were little kids and just think about it, like how you would teach a little kid to, to handle something. Cause we're right. not, we're not taught this. There's no curriculum that you're like taught at an early age about money. I was lucky in that I had my dad to, to mentor me and, and, you know, tutor me on, on numbers, but a lot of us don't have that. So, yeah, I just want to kind of, I wanted to kind of make sure I, I threw that in there and just like be gentle with yourself and, and be compassionate and, and loving and, and see the little kid in you that just didn't know any better, you know? It's a beautiful metaphor. I really like it. Thanks. What We've talked a little bit about, or a lot about uh, what you do to save money in the present, but what are you doing to save money for like 60? Like, do you have any investments? Like, what can people do more to think long term? Like, what is your personal strategy and what are you doing to make sure you have enough money when you retire. I believe it's now 1.3 million in Canada. Say you need to retire around 65. What are you doing for yourself to have that ability to have that money to retire? Great question. Uh, I, I, it's tough though. This is a bit of a tough question because it's different for everybody. So it's not so much like I don't have a generic plan that I give to everybody in terms of you know we have RSPs here in Canada, which are great because you get a tax receipt and it offsets your income, and so you end up getting, it brings down your overall taxes that you would pay, or sometimes you get a refund. Uh, those are great, but they don't work for everybody. They don't work for entrepreneurs, because a lot of entrepreneurs aren't t 4 income. For myself, you know, I look at all strategies. We built our business around looking at tax efficiency. So everything we do in terms of our recommendations for ourselves and for all of our clients are looking at the full picture and we'll work with the accountants to look at these are our taxes, this is the income, you know, this is where the money's going and how can we save as tax efficiently as possible and how could we keep as much within our own hands as, as little as possible given in, in the form of, of taxes. Not that there's anything wrong with paying taxes, but I just mean if you can control your money as best as possible, I think most of us want to and, and minimize the amount that goes to, uh, to taxes. So. We do have a fair amount of strategies that addresses this. You know, I, in terms of my own personal planning, one big thing, which has actually been my, my product that I specialize on uh, for almost 13 years, is there's in Canada we have a whole life participating life insurance product, which does not sound sexy in any way. And I know that because um, I, I usually try to avoid the word life insurance, but it it's, it's, in my opinion, an investment strategy. It's a tax-sheltered strategy using life insurance. Insurance is a, a tax-sheltered vehicle, and there's a book, Top 10 Things CRA Doesn't Want You to Know About, CRA being Canada Revenue Agency, and, and it's in there. It's a strategy that's 100% legit, but you're able to actually build money inside of a plan that's tax-sheltered and then access the funds when you actually need them. So in, in the meantime, though, they're growing tax sheltered and then when you need them you can pull them out in tax efficient ways so it's a bit of a you know it's not something I intended on talking about today when you asked me that I thought you know what this this in, this is the thing that I believe in the most uh, especially for people who are entrepreneurs or people who are looking for creative ways to 
you know, move money around or save money for the future. It's, it's kind of, it's a plan that you can build with whatever number you want and uh, assuming you're healthy and can actually get life insurance. But it's, when I first got it, I didn't get it for the intent of life insurance. I got it for the intent of saving money for the long term in a form outside of RSPs or your traditional uh, routes that banks would give you that was tax sheltered. So that was the route that I really believe in and that I went for and that I almost always recommend to clients. It's what I would call a no-brainer just in the sense that if it's tax sheltered and you have a consistent return on it that's based on a $25 billion pool of funds, it's kind of a why not sort of thing, you know? <laughs> right. So that's that's something that I love talking about. And, of course, if any listeners want more information, I'm more than happy to talk anyone's ear off about tax-efficient strategies for saving for long-term, medium-term, or short-term. I do want to get wrapping up here in a little bit because I know you have to be going. But I do want to get back to the mountain metaphor and hope you have a few minutes left to chat about this. Yes. What does your next chapter look like? This is something I like asking people on my podcast you always said that you know there, there's always a mountain that you're looking to climb. And there's another obstacle that you're looking to tackle. For Marissa, what is your next chapter in your book? What are you working on right now, and what does that look like? Uh, the next chapter. Well, the next chapter. I feel like I've, I've got a big mountain ahead of me right now. There's some big goals that I'm working on for the business, and I'm getting married in three weeks. Uh, I think the biggest thing that I'm working on right now, which is sort of my theme is climbing the mountain without suffering uh, in that, like without emotional suffering, not physical suffering. So learning to experience this huge mountain in front of me and see, you know, that feeling when you look up ahead and you see the ginormous mountain and you think, oh my God, I have to climb that whole thing. Um, that feeling that I think a lot of us have when we wake up and we have a big task to do and we think, oh, I don't want to do that. Learning to eliminate the ugh, like learning to look at the mountain and think, all right, one day at a time, and I'm just going to tackle a chunk of this today, and I'm going to smile in the process, and I'm going to ride this and, and be grateful that I have this ginormous mountain opportunity with this beautiful peak at the top in front of me. So I think that's, that's probably my biggest challenge because a lot of the time, you know, I've climbed some, you know, actual on a physical level, not metaphorically, beautiful mountains. And I, I was in my head half the time or I was, you know, suffering, like I was looping about stuff half the time and not actually being present and enjoying it. So my my chapter right now is is sort of climbing the being present while climbing this next mountain and uh, and enjoying the ride. And that's a really long chapter title. But, yeah, learning to enjoy the ride while climbing the treacherous mountain. How's that for a next chapter? Climbing gently. Climbing gently. I like that. <laughs> Nailed it. I like that. <laughs> I just finished reading the book called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. I feel like you'd really like it because he talks about reframing obstacles into something positive as an opportunity. And so I feel like, have you heard of that book or read it? No, but I like it. Can you send me, definitely, please send me the name. I want to, I want to, uh, that sounds exactly like what I would love to read about. I, that, that's the stuff that, definitely gets me, um, I think that's, for us to do big things and for us to create big things, whatever that is in your life, whatever you're working on, whatever your business is, whatever your goal is, whether it's building a family, whatever it might be, whether it's building a huge business, I think the only way to do it, like if you have big goals, you're going to hit up against challenges, you're going to hit up against failures, and you're going to hit up against adversity. So if you're going to hit up against it, you know, why not smile and enjoy the ride and, and turn the obstacles into something positive instead of you know, suffering your whole way through. So any any reading that you have to help me with that 
please send along. <laughs> yeah, it's short, brief, and he's got really good examples. Every chapter is based on somebody else, like presidents, famous people, like people in history that achieve great things. It's really well done. I'll uh, I'll send you a copy of it actually. I'll send Thank you my you. copy. Yeah, awesome. Well, uh, thank you for your time. People want to find you. You mentioned you do some writing and stuff like that. Where can people find the stuff that you've written or connect with you? What is the way to get in touch with you? Uh, well, our website is www.capital, C-A-P-I-T-A-L, core, C-O-R-E, financial.com. So, and maybe you can just put that in the notes as well. So For that's sure. our website is www.capitalcorefinancial. Uh, and there's a, a contact site on there for contact at Capital Core Financial for just general inquiries, which will get sent to me if um, they're for me. And I've got an email on there as well, of course, Marissa at Capital Core Financial. And you can find me on uh, any of the social medias as well as Marissa Sebelinski. Or our blog piece, which I just started writing for, is with Lunch with the Ladies. So it's also linked in all of my information, and it'll be on the site as well. But Lunch with the Ladies, we just started writing the financial blog piece for them. So that's where, uh, and I, I'll send you the link for that as well, but that's where all of the pieces go. I just wrote that one specifically on uh, on budgeting this week. That was This is the topic of the week. <laughs> awesome. Well, I will link all that stuff in the show notes. And Perfect. I'll even try to uh, yeah, find the last blog post you have and just create a link for that as well so people Perfect. can jump into that and read a little more. Well, thank you for having me. I think this is an important conversation to be had. And, you know, if this gets even just a couple of people talking and opening up their mind to considering the emotional meaning that they have on money, then I think we're doing good. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it today. Thank you. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with Marissa. I hope you guys learned a thing or two about your finances and how to save more money for the future. Tracking your expenses like Marissa talked about seems like a great idea to really get in touch with where money is going and making sure that more isn't flowing out than is coming in. We also talked about your relationship with money, which I think is an integral thing to understand. The way you're brought up with money when you're younger has a big impact how you think about money today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, I ask that you pass it along to just one person. For all the latest episodes, go to my website, philipsonsy.com, join the email list, and I'll have episodes sent directly to you. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and until next time.